Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Platoon is over. Everybody gotta die sometime. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. 
During his tour, he received a bronze star for gallantry. Ten years later, in Hollywood, he was picking up an Oscar for the screenplay of Midnight Express. Now he has another story to tell, a movie that grew out of his own experience. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. casualty of war is innocence. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. things we like about letterbox so much our friends over at letterbox.com uh is that you can do lists and you had a brilliant idea this morning andy would you like to induce introduce your brilliant idea i think that what we're going to try to start doing when we come to the table for each show is each of us bringing a letterbox list that we have found that uh, may relate to the film that we're talking about that particular day in one way or another what do you it, think? That way, for me, my list, if we're talking about the movie Platoon, and my list relates in that the movie Platoon is on that list. Now, oh, okay. That's, I guess, a good thing. I don't know if anything else is true about the list, but <laughs> I would like to introduce you to my favorite list, which we'll put in the show notes, which is, it, it is presented without commentary. It is simply 10 films on a list titled, Charlie Sheen, Acting While on Drugs. <laughs> And I love it. It's Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Platoon, Wall Street, Eight Men Out, Major League, Young Guns, Men at Work, The Rookie, Hot Shots, and Terminal Velocity. Wow. Not Hot Shots shots Part Two, though. Interesting. that's right. That does interest me. If if this is an indicator of uh, Charlie Sheen's journey toward clean and sober... I, I don't know if that's if if I, I think that movie should probably be on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. What you, what's your list? I I found um, that Rose has put together a list, a series of lists, actually, that I find really intriguing. When you're looking for movies about particular wars, uh, Rose has uh, done a very valiant effort in creating lists for you. I am looking at the list every Vietnam War movie that currently has 423 films 
on it. That is a lot more than wow. I ever thought. Now, wow. some of these, you know, I, I, I don't think of as Vietnam uh, War films, but uh, but they are. They they relate to Vietnam in one way or another. Even something like Targets is on this list. So I find this to be really interesting. But in addition to this war, Rose has also uh, created a whole series, an ongoing series of lists. Every American Revolutionary War, Napoleonic War, American Civil War, World War One movie, Spanish Civil War movie, World War Two movie, and every Korean War movie. Wow. That's a lot of war. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is so much war, but it's all on Letterboxd. And if you want to get it, if you want to join us on the Letterboxd uh, trip, we'd love to have you there. And you get a little discount. You get 20% off if you head over to thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. Uh, you sign up, you can join at the patron or premiere level, and uh, you're supporting Letterboxd in their ongoing fantastic development. Man, they've just blown up the last couple of uh couple of months uh and it's uh, it's really exciting to see all the great new things that they're doing to help movie lovers just love movies fantastic social network for movie lovers head over to the next reel.com slash letterbox sign up 20 percent off good for new subscriptions and renewals if you're coming up to renewal time make sure to take advantage of that thanks everybody Andy Platoon. Platoon. Andy <laughs> Platoon. I, this. <laughs> We've made our introductions now. Let's talk I'm about the movie. So, I'm so relieved watching this movie. I'm so relieved. I was worried based on all the movies we watched in our origin, Oliver Stone origin story series, that this movie was also going to be white hot trash. And because I, it's been a long time since I, I have uh, sat down with, with Platoon, I stand relieved. Please tell me you also stand at least somewhat relieved. Yeah, I, it's a solid film. This is a, it's a powerful anti-war war film. And wait a minute, I think, wait a minute. For you, when you open your line with, it's a solid film, that usually means there is a raft of quibbles coming behind it. <laughs> Are you quibbling me today? Seriously? No, I, I mean, there were things that I noticed in it this go around that Quibbles. I that I questioned. But on the whole, this is a really solid film and it still holds up. Absolutely uh, agree with that. I, I think it, it really holds up. And in fact, I think all of the things we've learned about Oliver Stone so far, all of his ideological, like his worldviews that he's shoehorning into um that he's shoehorning into into his work that the um, the fact that it is so deeply personal that he's able to capture I think something that is deep inside himself as clearly and cogently as he does and as a filmmaker the way he so just completely efficiently brings us into this world with uh, such an economy of world building. Some of that comes as baggage that we bring, having seen war movies in the past. I get that. But I, I just think that that introducing, you know, the Oliver Stone avatar, Charlie Sheen, as he gets off the plane in the credits and then is in the jungle, it, it makes it feel like I've already been with these characters for hours, you know, uh, getting into the movie. So it is, a, 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 I think, a wonderfully economical film um, that tells a deeply personal story with 
quintessentially great performances uh, all across the board. I didn't find anybody that I just didn't like in this movie. And this movie has everybody in it. Because everybody's <laughs> everybody's in it. That is really very true. I, I did look at the cast list and as I was thinking about, God, do I really, do we want to put everybody in our show notes? Because like, it's all of IMDb. It's, uh, I mean, Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Keith David, Forrest Whitaker, Francesco Quinn, Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, Reggie Johnson, Mark Moses, Corey Glover, Johnny Depp, Chris Peterson. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Tony Todd, even, and then of course, Dale Dye. So, I mean, there are a lot of people yeah. to talk about with this film. Yeah. Tiny Lister is not in it. That's I, disappointing. No, that was disappointing. Yeah. Mm. So where do you want to start as you as you think about this movie? Well, if we're if we're talking about the big questions, what what stuck out to you uh, as you started watching? Well, I think the first thing to discuss is just the fact that here we are talking about um, a Vietnam film. There had been Vietnam films made prior to this. We've talked about several of the big ones. The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now come to mind. Those films had been made already. This, however, was the first Hollywood film to be written and directed by an actual veteran of the war. So this was a person who had been on the ground, who had actually seen what was going on and really put a lot of you know, his realities into it. It's not to say that we didn't see stuff similar in those previous films, but this film does kind of come from that place of personal experience. And I think there's, there is something to that that does reflect in, in how some of the scenes were portrayed. And so I think, you know, in context of it though, I I guess my first question for you is, you know, this is a more personal Vietnam story. Does it feel personal or is there, are there elements about it that end up feeling kind of like Hollywood, like Hollywood screenwriting? I don't know. I don't know how to separate um, what it feels like from what I already knew going in, right? Knowing that this was his story, but they're not shy about telling you, the audience, that this is a, a personal story of Oliver Stone's experience. I think it's even in the trailer. Like, I, I think it's, it, it the, the trailer starts with, you know, in, in 1960-whatever, a young man was in in Vietnam, and now 10 years later, he's written a story about it right i i think that that's our voiceover effectively is like he's telling us that that this is oliver stone's largely oliver stone's experience so i i it feels personal to me because there's a lot of anti-american war uh, positioning in this movie and part of what makes it uh, a, a great a standout film for me is that these elements are so honest like cuttingly incisively honest um and so because it's it, you don't often see the good guys right your protagonists the people that you think you're you know, our mentor figures, right? The the mentor figure turn when Barnes and his ilk in the unit are torching the village, um, shoots the, the, you know, starts shooting villagers. Like, that's something that is so unexpected and so just wrenching to watch happen on screen because 
these are these were our heroes. These were people who were supposedly fighting the good fight. And so when the movie comes out and says this is not the good fight, yeah. you know, we've we've had we've been kicking ass so long that it's maybe it's time for us to get our asses kicked. Like that's that's a cutting commentary. And and Stone, you know, he put this together because as almost a uh, a way to counter all of the war films i can't remember which i think it was the green berets the john Mm -hmm. uh, wayne film just a counterpoint like the that exact opposite perspective that we're getting in this war film than we would in those john wayne films and i think that that's what he really took away and i think it comes through i guess for me that the hollywood element of the story that that rings yeah, you know, I I don't know. I I I always kind of question how uh black and white the characters of Elias and Barnes are as far as their opposite perspectives of everything going on and how that plays out over the course of the film. That's the element that feels a little Hollywood to me, but I still I still find it really powerful and I still find myself connecting with it despite the fact that 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 our young Chris, played by Charlie Sheen, is given such kind of blatant black and white representations of the two sides to uh, kind of look at as, quote, leaders. I I wonder how much of that is uh, comes with some of that sort of Hollywood baggage we were talking about, right? That that there is an expectation of or in how much Stone had to was was sort of being an economist by just making those positions black and white, right? Like he needed, I I sort of feel like he needed Chris to be at the center of this confrontation quickly in the film to demonstrate, you know, the, the lessons of life and loss and grief and war and what it means. And, and to, to make Barnes and Elias too, too textured, uh, might have been at the disservice of Chris's lessons, and Chris, as our as our Stone avatar, is like he, we we need to get his position pretty quickly. I guess I guess so. Uh, you know, and, and I mean, we need to, he needs to find a home. He needs to find his people, as it yeah. were. And um, but I, I I don't know. I guess I just wonder if. There becomes um, in the world of Vietnam films, and I wonder if maybe it started here. I don't feel it was as blatant in stuff like Apocalypse Now, which really just kind of took the, you know, the confusing nature of the war and just kind of, you know, everything was kind of topsy-turvy in that film. Right. The Deer Hunter certainly has uh, a lot of. Um, internal battles of people trying to deal with everything that happened while they were POWs and everything. Um, in this particular film, though, you really start seeing the actual uh, blatant portrayal of the U.S. leaders in the military mm-hmm. as not great people. And I just think of like, okay, there is this, and then shortly after this, we're going to have Brian De Palma's Casualties of War, which mm-hmm. feels like it's following the same pattern. And I feel like maybe that's, maybe it was, maybe it's, I find it an issue re-watching this film because perhaps with the start of this film, as American filmmakers began portraying more and more Vietnam War stories, it almost became a trope. 
you know, of the leader who is, yeah. you know, amoral and or just you no know, have, have they have kind of succumbed to the evils of man almost in context of their role in the war uh, as opposed to the young private who is still trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong well i think what's interesting about this one if you take elias chris and barnes and put them all together you have oliver stone right and the conflict of uh, that exists inside a pa- patriot wanting to do the right thing existing in a war zone and dealing with the complexities of all of this uh, as as part of the ideology of the film, and um, like he he went for a reason. He went, and and I think Chris is Chris tells the story right. I uh, why should the poor people you know have to have to you know be burdened with fighting this fight? I wanted to make sure I was doing this. Oh, he's a crusader. We got a crusader right here. Well, that's. Yeah. That was Oliver Stone, right? I I almost think that it it might be more fair to to look at the three of them as a complex multiple textured kind of identity than separating and judging them each independently because they do exist as as a trio they represent all the pieces that that i feel like we need i absolutely agree with you that this movie uh does define tropes and it defines tropes uh just not just in in what we see but in how filmmakers of Oliver Stone's generation depict the war, right? Like depict war and war movies, even if they're talking about other wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like this, this movie seemed to pivot. And I haven't seen, uh, I, I would say I'm not a, a student of war movies, but I've seen enough to know that this movie becomes sort of a pivot point, I think. I think that's probably true. I mean, I think I think Vietnam really became a pivot point anyway, yeah, because right, it, right. It, Culturally. it took exactly it took what Americans expected of war when it was something like, you know, bad Nazis, good, you know, Americans. And it uh, it it threw all that into kind of a, a nobody knew what was right anymore and it made it much more complex and that allowed for these filmmakers to tell much more complex stories and i know mm-hmm. in the 70s it was a lot more like the coming home types of stories that we got of soldiers who came home and were trying to sort things out but in the war films even even moving past that point we did start seeing more complex stories told during world war 1 world war 2 uh you know korea other wars that also had these sorts of elements so i think you're probably spot on as far as how this film began reshaping how we thought of war films and what what we would expect to see in them and and what we would, you know what we were comfortable with seeing in them and you know more complex uh you know, characters and uh, not so black and white. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting when we look at the way the film sort of structures our, our perspective that, um, there, I, I think there is only one sequence in the film where we actually are embedded in the other side. Right. And it's as they're, as it's at the beginning of their final climactic battle, as they're setting up all the traps and putting all their things in the trees and stuff. And we actually get to be in that position and it's brief. Uh, and I found it particularly jar- jarring in that context that we've just, we just put me on the other side of the line and I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if I, I don't know if I need it. I don't know. I don't know what, what, what you're trying to do, 
by putting me in this position. It, it is not a grand gesture like Clint Eastwood did in, by making a whole film where we're on the other side, right? Yeah. Um, it, it is, it's just a taste of the experience of, of, you know, the night before a battle. And, and I didn't know what to, what to make of that in terms of war, anti-war perspectives. I don't feel like Oliver Stone was really interested in the perspectives of anyone outside of the Americans and the American experience and the personal experience in this particular film. We're going to, you know, we're going to be talking about Born on the Fourth of July. That will be ending our series, but we're not going to get to talk about Heaven and Earth, which is the third film in Oliver Stone's, quote, Vietnam trilogy that uh, that does kind of conclude things and looks at things more from that uh, Vietnam perspective. And so, you know, maybe down the road, we can add that as a uh, member bonus episode or something just to kind of conclude this. It does the, feel like we know. probably should as yeah. completionists as we are, like leaving that out there, <laughs> hanging out there is gross. Exactly. It's, it's like an appendix. It's, an appendix. it's just gross. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I do you feel like I mean, this is a script. Oliver Stone started writing this script shortly after he came back and it went through several iterations. But this was around in the 70s and nobody would produce it because at the time they said, you know, Vietnam was not a popular war. We don't want to make a movie about it. And then after Apocalypse Now and Deer Hunter had been successful, everybody said, oh, we don't want to make that Vietnam movie because those two were the pinnacles of the genre. There's no reason to make any more Vietnam movies. So he could never quite hit the right yeah. point to get the film made. But if it had been made in the 70s, do you feel like um, much would have to change? Do you feel like the story could essentially be the same? Would it make for a good 70s Vietnam War film? Man, I don't, I don't know that I know how to answer that. The film doesn't feel dated to me at all. It feels of a piece, um, in, you know, in the eighties. It satisfies me in many ways about being a film in the eighties that was made in the eighties. Finally, we don't, because it's set during the war, we actually get some good music. So <laughs> that's all right. Um, I, I feel like, I, it would have been a strange film to come out in the 70s, maybe too soon. Maybe it, it would have been too soon for the kind of reflection that Platoon asks of you. Um, and I think a, a films like Apocalypse Now, they got away with it because they were so... Uh, it was so baffling uh, the the whole experience it was such an internal like a human adventure and uh, that I, I think the setting like you could actually make apocalypse now not be in vietnam and still have an, another have the story this well, platoon, it was based on is based on you know a, a novel so i mean it was an adaptation so obviously that helps yeah, absolutely. I, I think this movie is, it's so personal, it's so inextricably tied to Stone and his experience and to Vietnam specifically. Like, I, I can't see this movie transposed anywhere else. I sort of feel like it needed to age, it needed to age, the war needed to age for us culturally before uh, before this movie would, you know, was ripe. 
I don't know. I, I, yeah. it's, it's hard. It, it, yeah, it is hard to figure out. And I, I, I think I'm kind of there with you. Like, I think it probably would have worked fine in the seventies if somebody had made it. But I think perhaps in context of why it didn't get made until the eighties, I mean, we know why it didn't get made in the early eighties. Stone didn't quite have the clout. And, uh, after the hand, he, you know, couldn't get his hand back into directing for quite a while. And so it, you know, I that wonder took if he, just because he couldn't find it. <laughs> oh, it was crawling through the brush somewhere, uh, breathing deeply. <laughs> but yeah, it does make me, um, you know, wonder if, um, you know, it's just kismet. It's one of those things where it, it happened at the right time. It happened when it was meant to. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So we got to talk a little bit about Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen brings brings baggage, familial baggage to this movie, to this to a character of this ilk. Yeah, and I mean just having talking been talking about other Vietnam films, his dad was the lead in Apocalypse now. Yeah, right. How did, does that do do you find that odd? I have never questioned him in this film. And I, just like I never really questioned Martin Sheen in that film. And I don't know. I think they both work really well in context of the stories that they're a part of, you know, I mean, if anything, Martin Sheen was too old for, for his role in, um, in apocalypse. Now, you know, he was, I think pushing, uh, 25 or 30 when the film was um, being made. And um, so I think maybe he was a little too old, but I think he works in context of his role. Like I've just, I've always bought him in that role. Charlie Sheen was, um, you know, he was 20 when he was doing this. And so he just seems like a little baby face. And to me, he fit that uh, what I wanted out of a fresh soldier off the plane who had never been in war and wasn't really sure what to expect. Yeah, I think it's weirdly it like it d- never felt like stunt casting to me. But of course, I I don't I don't remember where my head was or where anybody was when this movie came out in 1986. Like I I was not paying much attention to, to that. And I, I should have asked my dad (laughs) because he loved (laughs) this movie. And, uh, I, I feel like it, it would be interesting to know what the cultural perception was at the time of having the younger Sheen in this movie after his dad did apocalypse. Now did that, did that, reek of stunt casting it did not to me it just felt like wow isn't it crazy that the sheens are so exceptionally good at playing these vulnerable characters in a war zone because it just it felt it felt fine it felt fine it's an interesting character because there's obviously a performance that needs to be given but in terms of the the main three roles you know sheen Beringer, and defoe it really seemed to be Berenger and Defoe that were the ones that people were largely talking about and and awarding for their performances. And I think that speaks to a lot of the times that the awards like big performances, because I think mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen's performance is a quieter internal performance, which it needed to be. And I think he really delivers. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a really impressive uh, performance that he gives here. It's such a surprise given where Charlie Sheen has gone uh, recently. 
you know, like it's uh, he's he just sort of fell off the rails a little bit, and I I feel for him and his addiction and and struggles. Um, but this was this was a, a nice homecoming. It was like watching a watching a really dark home movie. But, you know, it was like heartwarming to see where he was and what he was capable of delivering. He was coming from, uh, you know, coming from Malibu, uh, you know, in his um, uh, this passage in the biography, you know, he was he was a bit spoiled. Malibu, sheltered kid, uh, much like the kid on the script. And his mom was sending him packages that everybody was making fun of him for because he was like the nice looking guy living the gifted life. And now he was in a war zone, even though they were making a movie about a war zone, he was in a war zone. So I, I think he's really, you know, just his experience was really reflective of, um, you know, what the, the kid in the movie was going through and, uh, you know, that, that he was struggling. It's interesting to hear Oliver Stone talk about him through Charlie. I saw myself as a young man and I could step back without any self-consciousness and see myself for the first time through that mirror of time. And it was sad to see what I'd become in Vietnam through him. I mean, certainly part of me was stupid, ignorant, evil, and I didn't have any realization of that at the time. There was that's that's the that's where the bottom line is. You find out if there's an intrinsic good or not. That's what the film's about. I'm not unique. I'm one of four or five million guys who was out there. I'm just in a position to do something about it. I think that's, I think Charlie Sheen did exactly what he was supposed to do for Oliver Stone. And both, I mean that both personally and professionally as a director. That probably was a challenge in casting for Stone is finding a person who essentially it's not even the audience surrogate. It's his own surrogate, right? It's like you're playing me. And that's a hard thing, I think, for anyone to look at. And I think maybe that's why he, I mean, I was going to say maybe that's why he pushed Charlie so much, but then it sounds like he kind of pushed everybody. So I don't know if that's completely fair to say, but I do think he pushed him a lot. And, uh, but I think that the, the quote that you just read of his also is reflective of the fact that he'd cast well. And I think that you're, yeah. you are seeing that self-consciousness and I think that it, it uh, comes through and makes that makes it a powerful performance. Cast so well, cast so well. Yeah. Again and again, because from there we go the uh, the, uh, the rest of the trio. Right now, let's do uh, E Barnes or uh, Elias. Oh, let's do Barnes. All right, Barnes. First of all, that scar. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> that scar is legend. It's a serious, a serious scar. And uh, yeah, I, I I look at scars like that, and I'm like, that's a that is a a challenge of a scar to keep. Um, looking exactly the same for for uh, weeks on end, right? They have to uh, treat it just right and and make sure that it dimples the skin in the right way. It's it's quite a challenge to to pull off, but they do a great job with it. Just just while we're talking about this, car comes from the talented works of Gordon Smith in Toronto, and he was working with all kinds of new latexes, Andy. When was the last time you woke up and said, God, I can't wait to start work today on some new latex? <laughs> Delicious. Uh, and 
so it, it says the challenges of, of doing it the old fashioned way with the old latexes uh, are that, um, you know, it's hot and sweaty and tough to get them to stick and look right the entire way through. But he managed to do it. Uh, he says he made Tom look like somebody with a hob, hobnailed boot walked across his face. I, I don't know if the real Barnes had a had a scar like that. I assume he did. I assume he had some sort of of war-born deformation. Uh, yeah, I, I'm unsure, but I think at the very least, it becomes a character point that mm-hmm. gives as much definition of who this character is than than anything he does or says. It's it's that this is a guy who's been around for a while and is tough, and you know is going to find a way to make it through. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's it because, you know, what you don't see until later, I think at the village an hour into the movie is you see he's a tough, you know, we've we've had tough leaders, tough sergeants, tough, you know, etc. But this is a guy who the scar becomes an indicator that he is born to a kind of violence and retribution that is unique in the personality trio of the three of them. He's he's the one that the scar says, oh, he's a guy who's not afraid to and likely encourages the fight. And Willem Dafoe, weirdly, is the one who's pretty. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So interesting uh, comparison there. I think Barnes, I think Barringer's Barnes is uh, is fantastic. I think he's I think he's really, really great. I I'm. I think it's an interesting performance is a it's it is, I think, a a nuanced performance. It demonstrates a struggle for him. Like you you feel like it's not easy, even though it's natural, like this is who he is, but he struggles with it. I think he's he has he's delivered something that is unique on screen for me. Tom Berenger is an actor who uh, I, I mean, he really has fallen off the radar as far as kind of doing much of anything until people like Chris, Christopher Nolan pull him into projects again and, yeah, and throw right. him in, which is always fun to see. I mean, we've talked about him a few times um, on uh, when we did Inception, when we did Major League, but uh, there was this period of time where I just I, I feel like in the 80s, maybe into the early 90s, he was p- popping up in a lot of things. And I really enjoyed seeing him. And I, I think that he became one of those people who, uh, while always busy, largely fell out of favor with the bigger productions that were happening. And, um, you know, that's disappointing because I did always really enjoy him. And I think he carries a lot in his performance here. Uh, totally. He's not nice. He's not a nice guy. He's not? No. Do, I don't do you know? I, no, well, I know. Berenger himself, I think oh. he's a nice guy. No, I, <laughs> Barnes is not a nice guy. I don't know. If, I hope Berenger's a nice guy. I want to believe. <laughs> I was wondering. I was like, wait a minute. You, what do you know that I don't? <laughs> no. No, he was just here. Hey, Tom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just stop kicking the dog. Um, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, I, I just think it's a, it's a good performance and it works really well opposite of, uh, opposite Defoe, who reads like a real angel on set there's there's an odd thing with his character where when we first meet him like i i'm not sure how to read him uh, not when we first meet him when i should say when when uh chris first goes into kind of the underground the little place where all of the uh the potheads kind of go and hang out and stuff and when we first meet him there he seems like almost like too loving like the way that he's so accepting of him 
And I'm like, what are like, it, it was, it was kind of a strange way to play the character, a strange way to film the character. And it came across like really like, I don't know, like weirdly, like super paternal or something. Paternal or hypersexual. Or, there yeah, is or, an yeah. intimacy of like breathing each other's pot smoke through the barrel of a gun that that is intimate on so many levels, right? First of all, that that sort of hyper like homosexuality, uh, and uh, then there's the intimacy of like brothers in like born of battle and the sort of uh, uh, intimacy that comes with like demonstrating power over the weapon itself. Like this, that, that five seconds is incredibly complex emotional work on in, in that, in the head uh, there. And I, I found that really powerful, like incredibly powerful. It was very interesting the way that it was all portrayed, um, especially knowing that Stone um, decided he wanted to cast him after seeing him in To Live and Die in L.A., which is a completely yeah. different type of character than we're seeing with Elias here. Uh, so interesting. Um, just as a side note, I will say one thing that I found distracting in that moment when we were in their um, in kind of their little bunker there. And he's doing the thing with the gun and stuff is we're seeing everything from uh, from Chris's perspective as his POV and and Elias is looking directly into the camera. And then we get the reverse shot and it's a side angle shot of of Chris looking off to the side. And I'm like, this doesn't work when you're cutting back and forth like this and we're seeing Chris's POV of Elias looking at him of the end of the gun and stuff. But then when we reverse it, it's not that POV anymore. And that was a weirdly shot scene. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I needed to be thrust into Chris's head like that, because then it, it kept taking me out of it because we weren't in Chris's head on the or in Elias's head on the reverses. Yeah, I get that. I, I didn't actually notice it, but now I'm, as I'm kind of scrubbing through it, that, <laughs> That's weird. That's weird. Why do I want to be in that? Uh, why wouldn't I want to be? Well, it's like he needs to finish finish the the relationship, right? Yeah. Want to either be in the head of um, Elias or out of the head? Uh, now I don't. Now I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's <laughs> just be in the it, other head. It's just one of those things where I'm like, I, I I feel like Stone was trying to put us into Chris's head, but it's the only time we're ever thrust into that POV um, experience where we're yeah. seeing very specifically through Chris's eyes. And is it because of Elias? Is it because of you know he's smoking the the you know, at the end of a gun, like what was it about that moment that Stone said, I need to shoot this in POV? Yeah. Because I was like, I don't think it needed to be a POV. I already felt like we were kind of with Chris for the bulk of this film, certainly up to this point. So I wasn't sure what he was doing there because when he starts intercutting, it, it no longer is working. I, I think it's the drugs. I think it's like, like, look at, we're going to now, we're going to use this POV as an example or as a demonstration of the heightened experience. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that we're, this isn't normal anymore. And we've already, we've gotten accustomed to war zone normal and camp normal, but now we're in a whole new normal and he's never, he's, he's not much of a drug user. I think we can gather from this kind of fish out of water experience. Um, 
but but I also think there is a bit of like the way Elias is presented as his sort of savior figure that that heightened reality becomes a way to celebrate Elias as as a savior, right? Like there is there is a piece of that, that these are the new eyes through which I'm seeing this guy for the first time. Um, and, you know, Elias, we're talking about Elias, he is, I, I think, as actually carries a lot more uh, complexity than Barnes, even that he has to serve as both the the gentle kind of father figure, the you don't need this stuff. You know, let me tell you, I'll tell you what to carry. I'll keep you safe. I'll keep your eyes open. Um, and also, I'm going to take care of you in the tent. And also, don't worry, at the end of a mov- the movie, I'm going to be Rambo. Like, I'm going to go crazy behind the lines and I'm going to be alone and I move fast. You know, and and so like he has to be all of those things. And uh, I, I think Defoe is able to pull it off really almost effortlessly at this point in his career. Like he's he is anything but a one trick pony in this movie. Oh, certainly. I think that's very true. And I think he delivers, uh, you know, a strong performance uh, showing a balance of the kindness and the um, the leadership that you need to exhibit in this sort of role, mm-hmm. certainly more so than Barnes or O'Neill or Warren, even the other sergeants in this platoon. And uh, and to that extent, even more than their lieutenant, Lieutenant Wolf, that Mark Moses plays, you know, yeah. who seems completely out of his element totally and completely touch. unable to stand up to Sergeant Barnes like he is clearly the leader, but always less than as far as Barnes is concerned. Yeah. I love uh, just real quick. Uh, one more thing on Defoe. This passage, I think, is really great because he talks about um, about his relationship and his observation of Oliver Stone, of working with Oliver Stone. Um, and he actually speaks really kindly, like a very different experience than hearing other people talk about how Oliver Stone works. And I think this is, uh, uh, this is part of it. I don't know what to say about Oliver, except that he really thrives in the face of adversity. He's like a little kid. He flashes that gap tooth smile. He's fun. He's got a lot of conflicts in him. That's what really charges him and what makes him an interesting guy. As a director, he deals with everybody differently, but I think one of his great his strengths is that he creates a charged atmosphere. It's the thing you want from any director is that certain kind of excitement and a way to articulate the world that you're supposed to be living in. And then he says, I will dish him in this respect, though. If you turn the tables on him and give it something back to him, all of a sudden he gets this hurt puppy dog look like you just effing hit him with a low blow. <laughs> like, I kind of... I kind of love this um, this angle that Defoe brings up here that Oliver is a um, he's he is a a hypersensitive uh, creative just like all of us like he's he's just he's an artist just like all of us and wants his way right yeah. Yeah. In a, an incredibly complicated uh, scenario. Yeah, in a, in a complicated scenario in a film production that was detailing a difficult part of his life. Of right? his own life, yeah. yeah. So right. that, that certainly adds to the complexities there. Apparently, he did actually kick a one of the, the Filipino production managers uh, in the bottom. He kicked him with his foot in the bottom. And the production manager said that he was going to kill Stone. Uh, And so Stone ended up apologizing publicly, saving face, that kind of a thing. Uh, Johnny Depp apparently tells us a similar story. Um, 
uh, about the scene of a, the crying girl in the village and Stone was getting super intense to try and get the performance that he wanted and and uh, had to end up grab the arm of somebody who was reaching for a handgun to kind of calm them down because, you know, tensions got hot and watching this happen uh, in their country was apparently hard for a lot of the folks who were working on this film. I mean, it's a tough film. I, I think that uh, they they pulled something uh, powerful off, though. So it's it's uh, it was nice to revisit, and um, and it's and it's an, I mean, in context of an anti war war film, it's an easy watch. Like you start watching it and you stay engrossed in it for Until the full the two hour duration. Credits, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely agree. And and the, that they shot it, I feel like I noticed that they shot it sequentially. Like they shot a lot of it sequentially. So um, uh, that, you know, you you kind of get the feeling that all of them are together at the beginning and all of them really are at the end different. Like they are notably different. Charlie Sheen is a notably different person at the very end after the final um, confrontation with Barnes as they're is being lifted out. Because a lot of the actors had actually wrapped and left set they were gone and these they were they left set after being shot in the movie or killed somehow in the movie and then they were done and so that the sort of parallel of the the production the winnowing down of the production over time to the winnowing down of the unit over time in the narrative i think is is something that i you can kind of feel i i i felt i i was connected to that yeah i certainly think that helps the fact that they had uh, you know, basically put all of these actors through boot camp to really kind of train and make sure that they had the mentality and they understood what they were getting into. And I think that that whole side of things really works. And just, I mean, to that end, I mean, Dale Dye, this was his first film that he had done. He retired from the Marine Corps a couple years before this and founded his company, Warriors Inc., that specialized to train actors in war films to be more realistic. He did research planning, staging, on salt uh, consultation and as we find out in films like this he also would perform in them and his company is still the top military consultant in hollywood right now um this was this was his first film this is where he kind of started doing that and he did set up this elaborate i, I can't remember it was like 30-day boot camp for all of these actors to go through just so they really had a sense as to what they were getting into and i think that shows I love Dale Dye. I just love the look of the guy. I just think he's, I just think he's great. And his voice. Oh, what a voice. Even if you can't place the face, you got the voice. No, he's, he's great. I love, I, I mean, I've been noticing his name pop up in credits for years now and it's always nice to see. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, getting it made. I know a lot of what we've been talking about is about getting it made, but um, uh, this, this was a, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the journey. Well, yeah, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, Oliver Stone did actually start writing this right after he returned from Vietnam in 1968. He'd written a script called Break, which is uh, largely what, like where this started. It was kind of the foundation. That script never got made, but it did evolve into Platoon. What's interesting about the script is that initially he wanted to cast Jim Morrison from The Doors as the lead in it and have you know the music of The Doors all through it. Um, Jim Morrison didn't respond, um, but Stone got the script shortly after Jim Morrison uh, died, and apparently he had it with him when he was in Paris and he was still reading through it. So that's kind of an interesting little side note. 
That really, though, kind of pushed Oliver Stone to jump into film school and really start kind of developing these interests. He started working on the script and um, really kind of developing it. And uh, there was a point where Martin Bregman was interested. We talked about him uh, when we're talking about Scarface, Scarface because, yeah, yeah he, he works with Pacino quite a bit. Um, Sidney Lumet, I guess, was going to um, helmet when Marty Bregman was interested in the project. And Al Pacino was going to be the lead if they could find a studio that was interested. But again, as I mentioned earlier, studios weren't interested in making Vietnam films at this particular point. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Al Pacino as Chris? Yeah. Yeah. No. Can you see that? No. <laughs> do, who no, do you see more, no, Jim sir. Morrison or Al Pacino? <laughs> yeah, no, I was already off of the Jim Morrison train the moment you mentioned his name. But Al Pacino, I'd rather Jim Morrison. Uh, it's an interesting uh, way to kind of see this film. Uh, yeah, um, uh, but it's, it's nice to know that at least because of the way the script had been written, that was enough for him to be hired to write the Midnight Express script, which then he went on to win an Oscar for. So obviously that just the the foundation of this script was really what kind of got his career going. Um, he still couldn't get it financed. And we talked about this in some of the earlier ones. There was this deal that he made with Dino De Laurentiis when he was working on Year of the Dragon that he would take a really low fee for that so that De Laurentiis would produce a platoon. But he could got the he got the financing together, but he could never find a distributor. And so he finally um, turned it over uh, back to um, back to Stone and Stone was able to uh, find the right company to come on board. It was John Daly with his company Hemdale and they got this and Salva, Salvador both done. And uh, the rest is history. I'm sure De Laurentiis really regrets now not being able to uh, to find the distribution deal for this since it did um, do much better than any other project that Stone worked on with him. Maybe it cost him a sleepless night or two. All right. We got we got some other alternate casting universe. Just some trivia. Right. Are there any of these that are. That, that you think would have been improvements over what we got. For example, for Chris, we've already talked about Al Pacino. I think coming off of Scarface, um, having Scarface in his back pocket, along with some of the other movies that he did in the 70s, I just don't, I just can't see him as the kind of innocence that we get in Chris here. But what about Keanu Reeves? Uh, what an odd choice to picture Keanu Reeves playing him. I mean, he actually started in 86. River's Edge is what I was thinking, but he'd also done Young Blood and Flying the same year. So it would have been a, another essentially new face to to cinema to have him pop up. Interesting. I can see that more, frankly, than I can see <laughs> certainly Al Pacino. I, I think he has that that sort of innocence and that you can kind of, you, you can sort of see that mop of of black hair like getting shaved off in one of the in, in a montage for Keanu Reeves I can I can see that um so I I could I could make that but I I'm happy with where we are how about for Tom Berenger uh what about uh, Mickey Rourke could you see old Mickey in there I could I could see Mickey Rourke working well I could actually see Mickey Rourke work, working really well in there Emilio Estevez that's a weird choice would have been the weirdest of choices then we're looking at stunt casting Right, right. <laughs> then it's like the real cross the line, like, yeah. yeah the, the Sheen family uh, <laughs> right. Vietnam uh, thing going on here, yeah. um, and he seems way too young also to play that character. Yeah, so that to I me is so the too. strangest part yeah. of that. Kevin Costner, 
I can see that. I, I can see Kevin Costner doing the role. I don't know if I've seen him do such a villain before, but that would be actually pretty interesting for him, especially at this point in his career. I know. I feel like I could see him doing the Elias role before I'd see him doing Barnes. I guess he turned it down because his brother had been in Vietnam. Oh. What about, uh, so we got Willem Dafoe as Sergeant Elias. What about Denzel Washington? I think that's a really interesting casting idea. I guess the role had originally been written to be a Native American actor, and Stone was couldn't find anybody that he was happy with, and so kind of toned that element of it down. Um, but I could see Denzel doing it quite well. I can too. Just finished The Little Things uh, with Denzel, and uh, just constantly impressed constantly impressed it was really nice to to see his name as expressing at least interest in this movie i can really see it in an alternate universe i i could watch that movie yeah, yeah. um and then i mean from there come on keith david forrest whitaker we already did the rundown it was i was uh john c mcginley uh i i love that there are actually lines in this movie that john c mcginley says that actually directly make it into his character in Scrubs, right? Uh, <laughs> at, at one point, he's he's talking to, I can't remember if he's talking to Barnes or uh, something. He's talking about Bar- Barnes Arena. He calls him Barnes Arena, something like that. He uses that kind of language. And that, that absolutely makes, it makes me feel like Scrubs is in the platoon cinematic universe. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, and Kevin Dillon was a surprise. I'd forgotten Kevin Dillon was even in here. I think if I have a quibble, it's that Kevin Dillon's uh, sort of character as a nemesis didn't feel like it matured. I, I, that, I never really saw him as a nemesis. He was just one of the, I, I think, in context of these sorts of platoon where you're following the whole, the the platoon or the, all the different uh, squadrons he, he was on and everything. Thug. Yeah, right. I didn't I didn't think that there was much more to that. If anything, I actually found it to be pretty interesting to see kind of just the way that people were reacting to things, you know, like when they were having that moment with the in the village and there was the um young man who seemed to be, you know, have some sort of mental deficiency and one leg and and then his mother and the two of them. And it was just interesting to see how that scene played out between Chris and Bunny, uh, Kevin Dillon's character, and and kind of how that uh, how that came to be. And it just like it was I don't know, I found that to be a pretty interesting moment because Chris seems to be losing his mind in that particular scene. But then to see what bunny does it's like wow okay i mean just almost kind of took it to a different level so yeah um johnny depp was another surprise for totally forgotten johnny depp was in here as learner uh he does get a good death he's he doesn't have a lot to do in the movie uh this one was um this was before anything really big for johnny depp but you could probably trace the line from here directly to 21 jump street and that gets us to crybaby which gets us to edward scissorhands you know what i'm saying yeah i i I feel like i mean yes but i do in my head i still always think of nightmare on elm street first but um uh, but certainly I, I, like, I think of that more than this because he, in so many ways, he ends up being just another of face of so many of these men, but, yeah. um, yeah, certainly 21 jump street really was kind of the kickoff for him. Um, yeah. 
that led to and, and crybaby i don't even really think of as yeah it's really it seems edward scissorhands is really where things really turn for him yeah yep yep anybody else uh you're super excited about in the uh list of many faces but just i mean i i read through them all earlier i just yeah. thought everybody worked so well in their roles whether it was big or small i thought that was a it's a strong cast camera is uh robert richardson yeah we talked about him on uh, salvador and this is you know he he and stone are going to be working together for a while now and i think they're developing a a good look for their films they're capturing this i mean i think that i mean pauline kale i think complained about it about all of the uh kind of just so many beauty shots <laughs> throughout the film of like the kind of the smoke through the the trees in slow motion and stuff like that but i think it all looks really good i really yeah, like I all of that kind of the filtered poetic license of capturing the beauty of this world and all the horrors in it i think um worked exceptionally yeah uh and the music, Andy. Come on. Come on. Yeah, Georges Delarue is, I mean, his music's great. I think it's it's hard to define the line between George Delarue's music in the film and really Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, which Delarue adapts for the film and Heavily. works. <laughs> exceptionally yeah. i mean it's it's constant in the film but it works really well to kind of create this this tone which we didn't even really talk about the fact that largely this film is narrated we're getting chris writing letters back home to his grandma and i think that playing adagio for strings is i don't know it ends up feeling very much part of that reflective element that we have through chris's letters I that is a I'm glad you brought that up. It was a, a one point I did want to bring up. For the most part, it worked for me. The the letters. Uh-huh. Did you did it ever weigh on you the voiceover? It does. There are times where I question. I'm like, is this? I feel like we're being expositional here without writing a letter that makes sense. <laughs> like, is this really what yeah. he's going to be saying to his grandma? Like there were some times like that where I was like, eh, I don't completely buy into this at this moment, but on I, the whole, I, yeah, I bought into it. Uh, I bought into it really pretty much the whole time because I imagine people writing letters home to their grandmas. You know, I imagine oh, yeah. especially these kids until the end, Andy, until the end, he's, he's above the skyline in the helicopter. And he says, I think now looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves yeah. and the enemy was in us. The war is over for me now, but it will always be there for the rest of my days. As I am sure Elias will be fighting with Barnes for what Ra called possession of my soul. There are times since I, since I have felt like the child born of those two fathers. Okay. If that's, there is that, anything that's over the about. top, yeah. it's that, it's that, that was that like a, I already got Everything out of that. The camera was reading his mind. I did not need to hear those words. And it is a wildly, dramatically overwritten paragraph. And it's one of those moments that I think Oliver Stone, you could argue he's earned this moment. Like he's earned the point that you've gotten to with this film where he's allowed to do that now to write a little more. Um, of a flowery letter to grandma to kind of get the final um, moment across for everybody, but I also just felt like um, I had already seen that in the film, and so that's and that's the letter. Like I, I hit that point, and it just it does make me go really 
this really what he's writing home to grandma? Well, it it fits his descriptive text. I mean, he opens that scene, right? Sort of um, LZ chopper day. The chopper now rising to meet God. Smashed on morphine, Chris looking out the waving ants below. I mean... Stone's a heavy writer anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Oh, so funny. All right. Let's see. Uh, sequels and remakes. Where is Platoon 2, Andy? I, you know, I don't know if we really actually have any sequel. We really need to rename this in the notes because it's it's not even sequels and remakes. It's just adaptations is really what we're talking about here. Um, Dale Die interestingly i i thought uh ended up doing he was the one who wrote the novelization for the film last person i would expect to actually do that yeah, <laughs> but right. but in context of his experience with the war i guess i was like okay you know what actually i can see him being able to interpret some of that and put it into the novelization um the only other elements that were adapted from this is there were three video games made about this there was avalon hill uh they produced a game in in 86 and it was a, an introductory game to quote attract young people into the wargaming hobby for whatever that means um then the following year after this came out there was a shooter video game that ocean software developed and that was for a number of different computers and then last but not least 2002 there was a game called platoon the first airborne cavalry division in vietnam which was an rts uh game for uh windows that had come out so war like sh- you know shooter games are pretty popular it just strikes me as so strange that this is the film that they choose to adapt because if anything, I think the, they're completely missing the point of the movie itself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, how to do it awards season? This was a a good movie, and this is one that started getting award recognition and really started putting Oliver Stone on the map. The film had 24 wins, 15 other nominations. At the Oscars, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. And it was nominated Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe both for Best Supporting Actor, but inevitably they cancel each other out. Michael Caine ended up winning for Hannah and Her Sisters. Oliver Stone lost original screenplay also to Hannah and Her Sisters, to Woody Allen. And uh, Robert Richardson lost Best Cinematography to The Mission, uh, which Chris Menges shot. And that's a tough one to argue because that film's pretty gorgeous. Um, at the Independent Spirit Awards, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, and Best Screenplay. Interestingly, Willem Dafoe was nominated as Best Male Lead, and he actually lost to James Woods for Salvador. And over at the Golden Globes, it won for Best Picture Drama, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor Tom Berenger, but lost original screenplay to The Mission. Okay, so they Berenger lost. I wonder, what do you think? Do you think like if this movie had dropped this year? If Berenger would still get the nod up against who is nominated this year. Yeah, I just mean in general, like, is this a a part? Is this a part that is one that is that would get nominated given our current culture around firearms and white people love of gunplay and all of those things? I think it's a big role. And big roles often still get nominated. So it's possible he would still be uh, recognized because he's playing such a uh, kind of a hateful 
character. So it's possible. I, I think so, too. I think the big role is the is the deciding factor. But man, is that a complicated nomination? I can see how it would be complicated. How, how about the budget? Well, Stone's semi-autobiographical Vietnam story only had a budget of $6 million, or $14 million in today's dollars. Again, compared to the budgets of the films he'd only been writing, or Orion, who was behind this, clearly was still in their trial period with him. Remember, he had done the hand for them and uh, lost money for them. And uh, so, you know, wasn't on good straights at this point. But, you know, really, they didn't need to have worried at all. This movie opened December 19th, 1986 in just six theaters. Again, a sign that Orion was dubious. Opposite Little Shop of Horrors, The Lady and the Tramp re-release, No Mercy, King Kong Lives, and Duet for One. This movie was a slow burn for a few weeks before breaking the top 10 in its fourth week. By then, it was still only on 73 screens. A week later, it was on 174 screens and in the number two spot. In its sixth week, it landed in the number one spot, which it held for six weeks, increasing its screen count to 1,291. It wasn't until its 11th week when A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors bumped it out of the number one spot. And then in its 27th week, it finally dropped from the 10th spot. And by week 28, the week of June 26th, this is like full six months later, it was out of the top 10. But seriously, that was an amazing run. And of course, the win at the Oscars had helped. The movie did go on to earn $138.5 million domestically and weirdly only 15000 internationally. That's all that's been reported, at least. That gives it a total adjusted gross of $324.2 million and landed it in the spot three for the highest grossing films of 1986 behind Top Gun and Crocodile Dundee. It landed an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.6 million and not only made up for Stone's bombs with Orion, but set Stone on his way to becoming a name director. And how, Andy. Mm-hmm. And how. Um, all right. Well... I love that we got this on the list. I am blown away as I look at my previous reviews, uh, ratings of this film over the years. I don't know what I was thinking. So <laughs> let's let's go ahead and take it to the mat and see what happens. All right. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it'll take you straight to Platoon in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Platoon or In Darkness. Platoon for me. Platoon for me. Platoon or Rocky Balboa. (sighs) You know how much I do love that Rocky Balboa. (laughs) I think I'm I'm Platoon. I'm Platoon as well. Platoon or Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Uh, Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim. Platoon or The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Platoon. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Hmm. Interesting. That's right. Okay, you can have it. Oh, okay. I don't feel bad about it. I thought we were going to have to do a Barnes Elias showdown here. <laughs> I would never get the name straight. You know that. <laughs> Platoon or My Neighbor Totoro? Oh, dear. Probably. Uh, yuck. On the fence. I'm on the fence. I'm going to say Totoro. Really? Yeah. Who's Barnes in Totoro? <laughs> The cat bus, of course. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, all right. Totoro it is. Okay. Platoon or Le True? One of our French cr- French uh, crime films. I think Le True. I will say Le True as well. 
Platoon or Time Crimes? Uh, Time Crimes. I will say Time Crimes. Platoon or Seven Samurai? Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. Platoon or Fargo? Fargo. Fargo for me. That lands Platoon in spot 124 on our chart. 124 out of 496 puts it at a 75%. 75%. That's pretty high. Especially after some of the nonsense we've talked about recently. Nonsense, Andy. <laughs> I used the word. Uh, I am uh, I am pleased to say that it is... Uh, I, I was even higher than that uh, in my latest re-ranking of the film. How did it do on yours? Uh, did well for itself. 636 out of 4574 or an 86% for me? 86%. I even beat you. It ended up at 146 out of 1489. That's a 90%. Wow. Suck it. Way up there. Uh, yeah, that puts it, if I go by the algorithm uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a four and a half star film. And uh, man, I struggle with that half star. What do you do? What? Where did the half star fall when I'm watching this movie, Andy? Where did it fall? You have to decide that for yourself. I don't know where it fell. I don't know. Is this a five-star movie? Is it a five-star movie for you, or did you quibble it out? Was the last half-star the final voiceover to Grandma? Well, it's funny that you're assuming that I'm at four and a half, because I'm actually at four. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's a four-star. Four? It's, it's, it's a strong film. Four stars and a heart for me. Heavy quibblicious. Yeah, that's right. Oh, Andy. No, I'm going to leave it at four and a half, and we'll see if I can ever get over that last that last voiceover it's a whole half star of a voiceover wow i don't know i have no other justification for making it four and a half stars screw it andy it's a five star film five stars in a heart that's it that's it wow. that's where i'm sticking okay. yep all right well that that gives it a nice easy average of four and a half with a heart over on our letterboxd yeah. account that was it. All right. Where do we go from here? We're going to be looking at his next film again with Charlie Sheen. We're going to be looking at 1987's Wall Street. Now we're getting into the era that I remember seeing the films in the theater. I don't remember seeing Platoon in the theater, and I didn't see any of the other ones in the theater, I don't think. So that I haven't in- seen, yeah. I, you're, you're beating me, because I think my first film I saw of his in the theater probably was born on the 4th of July. Oh, I definitely saw that in the theater. No, this was Wall Street was it. I I definitely saw Wall Street in the theater. I'm excited to talk about this one. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Uh, I, I went low. I know you did, too. I did. I, I sometimes find that the low the low reviews lack some nuance. There definitely is that sometimes, for sure. All right. I, I found one. Mine's a one star. Did you go higher or lower than that? Lower. I went to the half oh, star. Good. Why don't you go first, then? I write, I've got a half star by Lance, who says, the voiceover was written by a four-year-old. Poor Willem Dafoe. <laughs> Nailed it. Okay, I get it. Uh, Oingrund comes in with a one-star review that I adore. Quote, the enemy is inside of us. End quote. Oof. 
if you are not an American and you like hating on America, if you are an American and you like hating on America, if you're going through all the Best Picture winners, then watch Platoon. If you like subtlety, like editing that's aged well, like having characters who have interesting beliefs and conflicting perspectives that challenge the audience, like not rolling your eyes through lots of cringe, like a nuanced view of a controversial subject, then watch Saving Private Ryan. Quick note, when the bad guy says, do it, I just lost it. <laughs> One star. <laughs> I feel like I'm I it sounds like I'm uh, awfully forgiving in my review but man I just liked my experience with this movie a lot. Ugh. Yeah. I do see everything that they just pointed out though. Oof. Thanks Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022 we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>